Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. A blockbuster is a film that makes disgusting amounts of money. <laughs> uh, they, they tend to be movies that sort of invade the popular consciousness in a way that's difficult to avoid. I tell people that a blockbuster is a $100 million gross box office receipts in a single territory. The Mule, Clint Eastwood's movie from late 2018, and it was a December release, is a movie that I did not make time to go see, despite my ongoing love affair with Clint Eastwood that he does not yet know about, but of course, it's true. (laughs) And the reason why I put it off is because as he has aged and knew his 70s, his 80s, and now his 90s, I think there are aspects of how he makes a movie that irritate me more than, than they please me. But given that hesitation, something that put a hook in my cheek was a Saturday Night Live bit on Weekend Update where Colin Jost kicks over to Pete Davidson, who was then getting out of rehab, and they were concerned about him. And he goes into a bit that he and John Mulaney do together, the two speaking to the camera, and it was them going on a double date (laughs) to go look at The Mule. And this movie was, I dare say... Yes, I The greatest. Weirdest. Most bananas movie ever made. About a nine-year-old drug mule. Everything they say about it is absolutely, certainly correct. It is a superhero movie for old people based on the superheroic body of Clint Eastwood who embodies a real-life person named Earl Stone who was once a drug mule for the Sinaloa cartel at age 90. What is your relationship to this movie, or how is it that you avoided seeing this blockbuster that was such a big deal in late 2018, early 2019? Well, so when it comes to going to the theaters, I've kind of been back and forth where I'll be like, oh, nothing is good anymore, which is ridiculous. Although, not unlike uh, an aged Clint Eastwood yelling at a <laughs> uh, at a Hmong boy to get off his lawn. Gran Torino, yeah. Um, during this time, I was deep into trying to obtain my undergraduate degree. I think I was only really looking at things that were actually nominated for Academy Awards mm-hmm. because of my radio show, and we do like an Oscar show, yeah. so I thought it was... Important that I see as many of those as possible. I'm very much aware of, uh, like, Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, The Favorite, but many of these other things um, I didn't, uh, uh, were, were totally off my radar. This included, in fact, when we were discussing this, I saw it on the list, I was like, well, okay. Sure. Yeah. Like, oh, wow, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm a bit of a completist, and so I feel badly that I haven't kept up with all of Clint Eastwood's movies. And, and as I say, the more recent they are, the less I feel willing to invest in them because I'll come away with a feeling of disappointment, which has largely been a strong reaction of mine, including something that was a global blockbuster like American Sniper. Yeah, well, although, I, you know, it's funny because I, I guess I've been sort of slow to realize that I, I have enjoyed many of the films of Clint Eastwood, but I, I feel like 
He's almost like an Al Pacino. So there was Al Pacino before Scent of a Woman. <laughs> yeah. And then there was Al Pacino after Scent of a Woman. Right. And it's like, you know, he it's, it's as if he, it's as if aliens came to Earth, uh, abducted the real Al Pacino, and put like this, you know, AI-generated caricature in his place. And so we got the hoo-ah, and I'm just getting warmed up, and great ass, and all that stuff. Clint Eastwood... It seems to me that there he sort of crosses this point where he's, you know, decidedly elderly. And there's something marvelously brave about that, because he is the star and the director and the producer. All of those things all wound up together. Yeah. But he's also a pale reflection of that beautiful younger guy who, even in his deep middle age, when he was my current age, still carrying all this really interesting thorny handsome weight we're watching that guy uh, he does he does lean into it too which i which i appreciate uh, there's an honesty kind of too yeah you know these these even even though he probably he's never know. the butt of the joke though right uh, the aging joke he's not the old grandpa who farts sitting down at the birthday party he's the grandpa who enjoys two threesomes i need to call a cardiologist <laughs> dr clark i also respond to clint eastwood because he resembles the kind of butch masculine fella that my paternal line is made of we're also watching him comment in character in the movies on that in ways that are sometimes very overt and sometimes kind of subtle. And in this movie, I'm thinking of a scene when Earl's in the middle of one of his runs. And the movie is sketched over the number of drug runs that he does. That, that's the, the plotting device. And on one of these runs, he's being shadowed by his boss. There's been a change in management. They don't trust him because he's the old white guy, etc. And he pulls over to help uh, a family in their Prius. Mm -hmm. They're a black family. The father is trying to find high ground to get a, a signal on his 5G network to figure out how to change a tire because right. he doesn't know how. And, of course, our boy Earl does, but he's old. It's difficult for him. So he shows up to sort of play Superman and help these people. He, um, he does by giving instruction. I would need that lesson. And I guarantee you that that father that he helped, uh, as soon as Clint Eastwood drove away... Uh, He's probably feeling a little more masculine, right? Because now he knows he can fix the he's, car. Right, he's got that in the toolbox now. Right, and there, there's a lesson in that that I agree with you is lost in a lot of us because we are in a technologized society that's service oriented, and we're in a rich society. So, for most folks who are lower middle class and above, you often will simply pay an expert to help you with a problem rather than suss it out yourself. Mm. Poorer people or people who take genuine interest in do-it-yourself stuff or who have specific trade skills will do it for themselves because they know it's a way to save money. But as soon as you have a little bit of credit card possibility, your limit's big or you got some money in the wallet, you'll generally pay somebody rather than do it. Right. And that is something that is drifting away. And, of course, Earl's a guy who will fix it himself. I guess the deeper theme of this movie is we are watching a man who realizes mistakes were made by me. I have not lived the way I should have to be the, the parent, the husband, the lover, the dad, the worker, whatever, that I could have been. And through retrospection is given a chance to find some money and fix some of that and fix some of the people around him. I'm not interested in that vision really at all, honestly. <laughs> it doesn't appeal to me. And we don't get enough richness into what Earl's all about as a character played mm -hmm. by Eastwood to feel that actually he's not doing anything but just living the best way he can in every single moment. I don't know if this was like intentional or not. But the, you know, the, the Earl we get to know is, you know, almost instantly, you know, we love him. <laughs> uh, and he just seems like such a straight shooter and an upstanding guy. And then we look at his, you know, bitter, pathetic, scowling family. Well, come on, he can't have been that bad. Like, and especially because even in the beginning, there's that conversation that they have 
where his daughter or whoever is yelling at him about you know not being there, and he's like, "I I was working. You had clothes. You had a you had a roof over your head. You had food on the table. So you didn't have him tucking you into bed every night, but." hey, that was the nature of his work. You've got to cut this guy some slack. With me, I'm on his side, not the family side. Nick Shank writes this thing based on a, on a New York Times article. And he uh, he makes sure that we understand that he's a scoundrel because he's forgetting his daughter's wedding. We watch the daughter preparing. She's put it in her wedding gown. Will dad make it? Oh, her mother reassures her. That's Diane Weist. Oh, of course mm-hmm. he will. And then it cuts to what he's doing, which is winning an award at his at his flower show and buying a round of drinks for everybody in the bar to celebrate his victory, including a wedding party across the room. Clint Eastwood is a charming guy, and he is the point of view character that the whole movie fades. So yes, he's being bad because of the parallelism developed by the screenwriter that the editor carries through. But what we're not told is whether being home was actually good for anybody. Right. He doesn't feel comfortable being still in the family. The real problem is that, from the internet age onward, he can no longer perform. It spins a bunch of B storylines out of one fundamental thing. The fundamental thing is, what does a man do when he's effectively aged out of his profession and he doesn't have enough money? But it has a thing about the cartels. It has a thing about estrangement from marriage. It has a thing about estrangement from children and trying to reconcile with them. And it has this whole unnecessary thing about chasing down the bad guy from the Fed's point of view. Mm -hmm. None of that is interesting to me. And every time we went into the side stories, I was incurious and I felt the movie slowed down and Mm -hmm. got kind of lame. But as long as we're with Eastwood hanging out in his truck, well, that's okay with me. I like that story. Yeah. I didn't really realize this in life until after sort of COVID, the the lockdown ended and live music came back. Right. I I go to a lot of shows and I I always make sure to get there early and I want to see the openers as well as the headliner. And there was one show I went to where the opening act was so bad. When the headliner finally came on, like the place, like they blew the roof off the place. And in that moment, I'm like, wow, okay, so I never saw value in booking an opener that is awful. Right. Because it'll make you look that much better. And here in this film, <laughs> okay, we loathe Clint Eastwood's family so much that he they're so in comparison. Right. Yeah. They're so henpecking and awful. They hate this man who they have no business hating because we love him. Yeah. Clearly, he's a wonderful guy. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, they're just like a millstone around his neck. That I, I, just, want, I just want him to cut that, them loose. That, that's a terrific analogy. And I'm glad that you bring it up. It, it, it lets some puzzle pieces in my mind sort of fit the frame all of a sudden. And one is he casts movies badly. He's surrounded by obviously great talents. Michael Pena can act. Lawrence Fishburne can act. Bradley Cooper. Diane Veist. They, they can act. Mm-hmm. And he's got some supporting players playing all of the Mexican drug runners. A lot of charm in some of those people. Mm -hmm. But his own daughter doesn't seem to be able to act very well. The various other family members around him don't seem to be able to act very well. So it ends up being this disconnection between, but that makes the people with skill look all the better. But then they're not in the same movie. Here's a meta point about Eastwood. This is a story that does not have appeal globally. It cannot be marketed to Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. You can't cause Madagascarians to turn out for this thing. Who would care in Sierra Leone? Right. right. But the English-speaking world that has an interest in Clint Eastwood's career 
can turn out for this, and they did. I mean, this made it. This made more than hundred million dollars. Yeah, I, I was kind of actually surprised Me too. By, because it's not the type of movie that would make that kind of dough. It's slow cinema. I mean, this is a yeah. lot of just long sequences of watching an old man driver talk to people who are trying to explain the modern world to him. There is violence. He is not a pacifist. He's been to war, but he is an old man who's not given to violence, and mm-hmm. he understands he's overmatched by muscled young thugs. He's not going to tangle that way. My general point then. This is a regionally specific movie about a very regionally specific problem, aging in America, <laughs> yeah. which is not the way most people can age, yeah. with a very specific and narrow problem, and that is trying to dramatize the life of a 90-year-old man who ran drugs for a cartel. A dirty business, sure, but it enriched him, and he's a perfect patsy. Nobody would suspect that this guy would be allied with these Mexican criminals to move powder across the country worth millions and millions of dollars. Yet that's exactly what happened, and that's why the movie kind of has this funny energy to it. This employs no CGI. It's all practical stuff. Just people reciting lines of dialogue, remember they're blocking, wearing costumes, and walking around. Anytime you describe a Clint Eastwood film after a certain age, the word curmudgeonly will certainly be in there. Yeah. Um, But I found him to be less curmudgeonly and more easygoing and more kind of likable in this uh, than he typically is. Well, I think a, a way that bridges young and old, and again, attracted that audience decades deep of old Eastwood fans to show up and watch this movie, is the way he treats the fact that he knows he's out of step, but he's educable. Mm-hmm. A clear and obvious example. There are three sequences when he meets minority groups that he wants to code a certain way, and he's taught a lesson. He meets this biker gang. Who you call him, son? Oh, you're gals, huh? Gals? Come on, old timer. We're dykes on bikes. He gives them a little nudge about how to fix their motorcycles. He says, Welcome, dykes. They have deemed themselves the dykes on bikes. It's the back of their jackets. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, club. certainly, they they probably, I have to believe, would appreciate the fact that he was so comfortable to just do that, whereas most of us would be like, uh, uh. What do I say? You know, I don't, I don't want to say it, you yeah. know, because, but it's like. Well, or the know. black family with the Prius on the side of the road. <laughs> well, it's good helping the Negro folks out. Negro? Whoa. Sir, we don't. Say that. Yeah, we <laughs> prefer black, black or, or just people. people. <laughs> yeah, I'm black, you're white. No shit. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> when he's being traced by the new management, and he stops roadside to have some food, mm-hmm. and they're the two Mexicans in the sea of white bodies who were all staring at them, and they know it, and they're uncomfortable. Why are they staring at us? Because they see two beaners and a bowl full of crackers. <laughs> These little notes show that an old guy can both learn from the youth and changing circumstance, but he can also lead to a way of balancing when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And then he's got those threesomes, man. Which I knew is... they were coming from the Davidson Mullaney joke, but when they happened, like, wow, look at that. That pleased me. In, in the second threesome pairing, we're, we, get a, we get a view from in the bedroom. The first one is he's being surveilled by the feds who are following, and they see him through binoculars, and these two pros show up to his motel room. And then we watch the next morning as they leave the whole night through. Yeah. Earl. Actually, at the conclusion of that scene, I actually had to pause the movie, and I went out to try to find someone from a drug cartel so I could try to join. (laughs) So I'm like, if this is what's going on, like, I I want in. I can can better spend my middle years before before I lose my mojo. Right. And the second scene, we watch uh, we watch the women he brings to bed. Well, he brings one woman to bed, or actually she sort of leads him. She's assigned him as a duty from the cartel yes. leader. And then another woman walks in. They're both bikini-clad women. They start disrobing. And then they take off his shirt. And so we see the aged 
Eastwoodian body, and it's this skinny old man's body with yeah. not flab because he's never been a fat man. Yeah. But the musculature is gone. He's more skeletal than he's anything else. But there he is, topless. Yep. He's so virile, he's able to actually perform for two women. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. The downside of this movie's presentation and of this valorization, which we're agreeing on, about an aging male body, an aging ale appetite, is he's paired with Diane Weist, who plays his estranged and eventually divorced wife. The hook story that connects her to it is eventually, spoiler, that character develops cancer and she dies. And she has a deathbed reconciliation with Earl, who does round-the-clock care in her final days to see her off the mortal coil, where she explains that you were the love of my life and the sorrow of my life. Okay, well and good. But they're separated by 15 or 20 years at least. Mm -hmm. So we're watching him hook up with women who are 50 years his junior, and we're watching him be married on screen to a woman who's 15 or 20 years his junior. In other words, there's nobody they could cast... It was actually Eastwood's equal in star power or age. That brings us back then to that, well, brings me back to that Davidson Mullaney thing where they're talking about how he's a superhero for old people because not only can he fornicate with two women at once, twice over, that seems to be a regular part of his appetite once his wallet gets filled up. Mm -hmm. But as they pointedly say, he can drive by himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true too. So the whole movie's based on an old mm -hmm. man who's content to be by himself in fact, seems to thrive on it. He likes being with people. He's charming. People like him. But mostly he likes being by himself. And he's allowed to drive great distances for a huge profit. Yeah, and really the only the only issue he seems to have with the modern world is, is, is that people spend too much time on their phones, which is true. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, oh, he bought himself a new truck because I had just assumed... He would be, you know, like, ah, uh, you know, they don't make them, you know, like, like they, they used, used to. to right. Like, there's nothing good with old Bessie here. <laughs> and, but no, what does he do? You know, he gets a fat payday and he goes and he gets himself a brand new pick-em-up truck. And I was like, okay, so, you know, even those little details, it's like he he's not one of these sort of people who gets stuck in, like, a time like, like me with going, oh, well, there's no good movies anymore. Yeah. There's another thing that just crops up, but it's not focused on a lot, because after all, this is a cartel movie. I mean, he, he is a drug mule, thus the name. The ravages of the drug experience really aren't part of this. An old man driving some stuff in a duffel bag from one place to another, and for a while he doesn't even check what's in the bag because he's told not to. So he doesn't, because he's following rules. Mm -hmm. I agreed to an employment contract, yeah. and I'll fulfill it. Yeah. And then I'll go about my life. Well, the idea of addiction... The idea of destroyed families, the idea of all of the things that I think you and I were raised on and just say no kids from the 1980s, all of that's absent. Mm -hmm. So it cleans up what he actually is part of right? And, and allows it just to be what we're largely talking about. He happens to find one of the best paid part-time jobs a person could possibly Oh yeah, have. falls right into his lap. I also want to emphasize that there are a couple of poignant moments in the movie that are very well-constructed bits of cinema, very good dramatic tensions. I find myself interested. One is when the Fed, that's, that's Bradley Cooper's investigator, hot on his trail, they have a meet-cute in a diner after a drug bust mm -hmm. where they pass each other, right? Our boy Earl doesn't know he's being trailed. Our boy Colin, that's Bradley Cooper's character, knows he's trailing somebody but doesn't recognize that while they are talking over coffee at this diner, that's who they got to find, right. right? They don't know it yet. Of course, the irony's fun. We know it. And that's what makes tension in the scene. Mm -hmm. that, that works pretty well. Yeah. Finally, when the feds do bust him on the open highway, and it's the thing we've seen hundreds of times in TV procedurals, 
Put your hands on the steering wheel where I can see them. Step out of the car slowly. All of those directions on how to arrest a man. Yeah. But when he finally steps out of the car and you're like, look at Clan. He can hardly stand. If, if the gust of that helicopter overhead gets a little too strong, yeah, it's, it's going to blow him over. Him down, yeah. Where's the man with no name? I was a little sad because things are changing, and we do we do we do have like a, a lot of quality filmmakers, and there's a lot of there's a lot of great films. Like how many of like the old guard do we have left? You know that are still. I mean, what we got Spielberg, Scorsese, you know Clint Eastwood. Um, you know, there's a handful, but not a whole lot. And I mean, we, obviously, based on the quality of his last two films, like we've lost Spielberg. Uh, uh, Scorsese still seems to have to have some, uh, you know. Well, based some, on the some, example some... we're getting from Eastwood, I mean, Scorsese still got ten years in, and maybe more. Yeah, yeah, and, and maybe that's exactly right. I, I, I think I hear what you're saying that because they're old, as long as their acuity is with them, mm-hmm. there's still much they can show us and teach us and give us. Uh, they, they can give us right, and and retain from kind of. You know, an older value of how you make a movie, right? Which sort of you it's know a, seems to be like lost on a lot of like current stuff, especially yeah, it's, the it's big a, IPs. It's and, not several thousand Bangalorean animators chugging a right, car chase, right? It can be a couple of people stewing mm-hmm. over a conversation. This is not a great movie, and I'm shocked that it was as popular as it was when it was released, yeah. because it did make $100 million in the United States, and another 70 abroad. I mean, this was a profit That's center a lot for, of for the producers. But it wasn't cheap either, nor was it terribly expensive. $50 million is a lot for you and me, but it's not a lot for the scale of movies. As you've already mentioned, the MCU movies, DC Comics movies, yeah. Lucasfilm movies, that regularly cost well over $100 million. This was not that. And I'm imagining that a lot of the cost of this movie, it wasn't in props, and this wasn't going into deep history where you have to have period detail. A lot of this was just salary, I Mm -hmm. think, and securing good hotels. And Brad Cooper, of course, had a big year. At the same time, this movie's in theaters. His debut as a director, and then as a star, A a Star is Born, was in theaters. So that's Mm -hmm. a funny little double feature a person could have had in late 2018, and some people did. And it's such a contrast in his skills as a performer and and what he's learned from a more contemplative director like a Clint Eastwood. I see a real payoff there. Mm-hmm. The idea, you know, I, I, I'm a fair-weather NFL fan, but I like the notion in the you know, the Monday morning quarterback kinds of things. When you think about coaching trees, how an aging coach, you know, has given life to a bunch of other careers and the athletes that they trained, a few of whom become coaches. Yeah. And the way they influence one another, which is far greater than their individual contribution any one game day, although that's what they're known for. I am a coach. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel that an Eastwoodian character, especially since Unforgiven, because for me that's, you know, that's the high watermark of a lot of things. Right. But the way that he now involves a great host of younger performers who are learning from him how to manage a set, how to move a camera, how to not go bonkers with practical effects because sometimes you don't need to go bonkers. Yeah. Something subtle, something small. A single gunshot will be better <laughs> than an artillery barrage. Yeah. And even so, in his later years, he's been able to mount unusual things which I didn't expect from somebody who was aging into a retirement age. I mean, Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers mm. have flaws, but they're tremendous undertakings of period things. The changeling. Uh, these are remarkable things from a guy who continues to be remarkable. There are still layers to this onion called Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And while I sometimes beg off of him from the disappointment of watching something like American Sniper, which did not agree with me, 
Then I go rewatch something like Mystic River, which I did recently. Went, damn it! I I didn't understand this the first time through. It's much better than I remember. Yeah. So a different a different read that I think makes a lot of older white fans of Eastwood comfortable is the racism that this movie showcases. It's the Mexicans not trusting the obviously trustworthy white dude who they hire because he's got a clean writing record and does everything to the regulations of the law. Right. They're the ones who can't trust a white boy. Not a white boy can't trust the Mexicans. Right. And right. That, that is so good a message for racist white people. To yeah, hear. right. Yeah, yeah. it's very reassuring. It is. Uh, and yeah. so that's a false note that just sticks with me. It's like, come on. Well, and I also, too, like, I, I don't know, I get the sense... The story was like really pretty lean, and that they so they had to come up with these kind of things. So so we need to inject these elements to heighten know, the to, mood, right? And to you know, get the page count or the yeah. script up, you know. And so this probably could have been a pretty good episode of like an hour long crime procedural yep. TV show. So I lifted up from watching this movie, and the missus, so how was it? Because she knows I got this thing for Easter. I said, well. It's too long. I, that's always my line, right? She rolls her eyes, and so I'm thinking about it. The advantage of this movie being shorter, and it's not that it's crazy long, it's not quite two hours, yeah. but if it were 30 or 40 minutes shorter, it would just qualify as a feature, and it could have been shown one or two more times a day, which could very well have developed more business, mm-hmm. because that many more butts and seats may have wanted to go to the show. And I guess last of all, two little notes, this is before COVID, so there was a different movie-going experience. People were not content to watch this kind of regional entertainment at home. They would still go in public and watch it, which is something now that you and I, but definitely you more so than I, have returned to public theaters. Oh, yeah. And then unexpectedly, I'm I'm not a country guy. Right. And I've learned to think that Toby Keith is not really on my side of the fence ideologically. Right. But the dude can croon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And his song, to go over the final credits for this, I got a little teary. Yeah. (laughs) Don't let the old man I won't live it so long. Can't leave it up to him. He's knocking on my door. This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop boobity doo. 